Uh, evidently, a lot of people lately have been giving some serious thought to the topic of what makes the perfect body. According to a recent survey in the, in the Herald Sun, uh, their readers discuss, reckon that the perfect woman's body consists of, among other things, uh, Angelina Jolie's lips, Jennifer Lopez's bottom, Nicole Kidman's nose, Cameron Diaz's legs, Sophia Loren's cheeks, Elizabeth Taylor's eyes and forehead. The perfect man's body? The survey found that it consisted of Brad Pitt's pretty well everything, really. Uh, His nose, his abdomen, his butt, his eyes, his chin, his cheeks, his legs and his forehead, all sort of stuck on top of David Beckham's legs. Scientists have also recently, just last month, uh, been giving some thought to what makes the perfect body. Uh, Their results are a little different. Uh, Last month, a group of US scientists, they got together and they put out a paper saying that the perfect human body would be, quote, short in stature and with extra fat. I've been telling Sue I've got the perfect body for years. (laughs) Now I have the proof. If you'd like to know what makes me the perfect specimen, scientifically speaking, I'll tell you uh, uh, over morning tea, but this morning I'd actually rather spend our time thinking about what God reckons is the perfect body. Because you see, over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here, we've been getting this really exciting picture of what the future hope is that we can expect as God's people. And we've been seeing that the best for us is yet to come, that one day God's going to usher in a new created order that will be perfect Uh, He's going to usher in a new world where evil and sin will be done away with. And last week we discovered the really exciting news that this side of the cross, you and I, because of Jesus, have an absolute guaranteed place in this new creation. Our hope is firm, for we have a perfect priest who has offered a perfect sacrifice uh, so as to perfectly reserve a place for us in this perfect new world, which sounds terrific. This morning, though, I want us to be a little bit more up close and personal, really. I want us to think about what we as individuals will be like. What will you be like in the new heavens and the new earth? What type of person will you be? What type of body will you have? They're interesting questions, and the place in the Bible where we get, I think, the best answer is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Uh, part of which Nicola read for us earlier, and a passage which really has three main movements to it, Uh, those being the certainty of a resurrection body, the characteristics of a resurrection body, and consequences of having one. Uh, Firstly, it's the certainty of a resurrection body uh, that is talked about in this section. And to see this, we need to back up a little bit from our actual Bible reading, back up to verse 12, where we discover that this whole topic comes up because there's a bit of confusion over whether or not we're even going to get our resurrected body in the first place. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the, from the body? It would seem that from that verse that there's an idea floating around that there's no resurrection from the dead at all. I'm not quite sure the exact form that this idea may have taken. Maybe it's the idea that after this life we'll simply be bodiless spirits, you know, that we'll sort of be floating around in heaven somewhere, 
a bit like Casper the ghost. We won't, we won't have physical bodies. We'll just be sort of spirit vapour type things. Whatever the precise details, some are saying, quote, there's no resurrection from the dead. Paul begs to differ. Notice his reasoning at the beginning of the verse. But if it is preached that Christ has been risen from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Get the point? Jesus' own resurrection has shown that there is such a thing as a resurrection of the body. He he reinforces this in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now you feel the force of the argument? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then you and I should have stayed at home and slept in this morning. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus hasn't been resurrected. His body's lying somewhere in a grave in Palestine. And and us being Christians is just a waste of time. Certainly me becoming a minister was a very bad career move. Because if there is no resurrection from the dead, Christianity is a dud. But hang on. Jesus did rise from the dead. People saw him. There is historical evidence for it. And in that one trailblazing act, Jesus not only has proven that there's a resurrection from the dead, he's paved the way for others to be resurrected from the dead. That's what Paul means in verse 20 where he describes the risen Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a farming term. It's the first produce. It's, it's the first bit of the harvest. There's plenty more of the harvest to come, but for now, here's the first fruits. That's Jesus' resurrection. Plenty more to come. But here's the start of it. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee. It's his down payment that what he's done for Jesus, he's now going to do for all the followers of Jesus. A resurrection body. A a renewal of bodily life. Not a Casper-like, vapory sort of spirit floating around in heaven somewhere. Our hope is of a resurrected bodily life in a new physical world all of which raises quite a few questions because if it's a certainty well what are the characteristics of this new resurrection body will we look the same as we do now Uh, what age are we going to be resurrected as will we come back at 18 or 25 or uh, what about babies who have tragically died what age will they be in the resurrected body will we recognize them My guess is that a lot of those questions have come to us at different times. Here we go. Here's the Apostle Paul's answer. Verse 35. But someone may say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. It's not quite the start we would have hoped for there. I wonder whether the how foolish might be against this background of mocking that there is no resurrection. You know, so some people are mockingly saying, well, how are the dead raised? You know, what sort of body are they going to have? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37. When you sow, you, don't, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. 
But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There's also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, splendor of earthly bodies is another kind. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it will be raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now, look, in some ways, they're very frustrating verses, aren't they? I mean, here at last is the Apostle Paul going to talk about what the resurrection body is like, and you get all this stuff about um, birds and fish and sun and moon and stuff, and it's also tantalisingly cryptic. Well, most of us, I think, if you're like me, would like a bit more detail here. We'd like some photographs. Paul says, don't worry about that sort of stuff. Just know that our resurrection body will be totally different category to this body. Just like a seed is in a really different category to the, to the mature plant. Just like a seed could probably can't imagine what it's going to be like as a mature plant. That'll be like us. Don't be concerned about what will sort of look like. Just know that your new created body is going to be appropriate. That on a glorious, imperishable, eternal new world, you're going to have a body that will be glorious and imperishable and immortal. That in a perfect new creation, you're going to get a body that is perfectly suited. Now that in itself is enough to know, I think. But even that, we can gleam a bit more. I mean, the words imperishable and immortal. I presume that means that that our bodies won't wear out. That'd be nice. Just last Monday... Uh, during the strenuous act of washing my hands, my back went on me. And I had to get Sue to come in and, and help me move from being stuck on the one spot. And I cannot thinking how ironic that, that in the week I'm preparing a talk about the resurrection body, my present body decides to remind me just uh, how much improving it needs. Your back going out won't happen in the new creation. It won't wear out. Indeed, as good as all that is, I'm wondering whether, from Paul's perspective, verse 44 actually tells us the most exciting thing, and that is that we'll be raised a spiritual body. Mind you, we need to, I think, understand what he's getting at here, because don't see that word spiritual and think of some disembodied spirit floating around in the presence of God somehow. That would actually contradict everything that he's saying. Spiritual there in verse 44 means that our body will be fully empowered with God's spirit. That we will have a body no longer controlled by the sinful desires of our present flesh. We will have a body now fully and utterly controlled by the spirit of God. We will have a body in step with the spirit, bursting with those spiritual fruits that we read about in Galatians. We will have a body that, 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 that bursts forth in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We will have a body controlled not by sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God. And in that sense, we're going to be like Jesus. Verse 48. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. But as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, 
that's Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Now some people see in those verses the idea that our resurrection bodies are going to be a bit like the body that Jesus had when he reappeared to his disciples. You know, so that uh, we're going to be mysteriously able to appear in locked rooms the way Jesus did. I'm not sure that's definitely the case. I suspect more that Jesus' resurrection was quite a distinct event. Everything in the New Testament leads us to the conclusion that his was quite a unique resurrection. Uh, He appeared with the wounds from his crucifixion. I don't think that necessarily means that our resurrection body will bear the wounds of what we die of. I think the New Testament wants us to see Jesus' resurrection as a quite distinctive, trailblazing act so as to unambiguously show us the power of the risen Christ over death. And so I think when Paul says in verse 49 that we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, I think it's in the context that he's speaking of we shall bear the spirit-led life like the man of heaven, the life of obedience and trust that Jesus had, that, that we will gain control over the inner sinful desires that plague us for the moment that God's spirit will saturate our thoughts and desires with ones that are noble and true and right and lovely, admirable. And so to a church family that are saying, or maybe some of them are saying there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul is saying, you've got, you've got to be choking. Of course there will be. Jesus' resurrection not only proves it, it paves the way for it. There will come a time when the followers of Jesus, you and I, will be changed like that. And we will receive a great body that will be perfectly suited to a perfect world. A body no longer enslaved to the cravings of sinful nature. A body now fully energised by God's own spirit. So that we'll be like Jesus himself. And you see, having spilt that out, that certainty, those characteristics... He turns to some consequences, consequences which revolve around the fact that we can live this life no longer at the mercy of death. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishability, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Brazil, there's a story of a missionary uh, who was working amongst an Indian tribe suffering a very uh, terrible illness, a contagious illness that was ravaging the population uh, to the effect that people were literally dying every day from it. Their only hope, he decided, was for the entire tribe to trek through the jungle and reach a neighbouring hospital for treatment. Trouble was, to get to the hospital, they had to cross a river that they had never been to before and which they refused to cross. They reckoned that it was inhabited by evil spirits and that if they entered the water, that would mean certain death. Well, the story goes that the missionary explained at length to them that that wasn't the case, but they just wouldn't listen to him. 
He led the tribe to the bank of the river and he put his hand in the water and they still wouldn't follow him. He walked into his waist and he splashed it over his face and they they still refused. So eventually he turned around, dived into the water, swam under the surface until he came up on the other side, at which point he punched the air to say he'd done it. And they cheered and followed him across. That is a pretty good picture of what Jesus did. We are trapped in a life confined by death. We are trapped in a life at the mercy of sin and death. Sin is described as the sting of death in verse 56 there. Sin is the trap of death. That once we sin, you see, once the sting goes in, death snaps around us. Because of our sin, death is now inevitable, justified. But by dying on the cross, Jesus robbed that sting On the cross, Jesus took the punishment we have received. He submerged himself in the death we deserved. And on the third day, he rose and punched the air to show that he'd done it, to show us his power and that those who follow him, death is not final. And therefore, your life is not futile. Last Monday night, I... uh, I watched a fascinating interview, didn't get home too late, so I only watched the last bit of it, between Andrew Denton and Sir David Attenborough, you know, the famous naturalist who makes all those wildlife documentaries. Uh, Andrew Denton asked Sir David whether or not he had a sense of the afterlife. Sir David's response, no, none at all. Andrew Denton As you have gotten older, how has your attitude towards death changed? Has it changed at all? Sir David, I think about death every day. Andrew Denton, when you think of it, what do you think of? Sir David, I think mainly of the problems I'm leaving for others. I mean, occasionally you think, why am I doing this? Why am I buying this object or buying that or doing the other? Probably not going to be here in five years' time. They are fascinatingly honest words. Here is a man, a famous man, who the world would say has done immense things in his life and every day he now thinks about death. Thinking about how it just robs meaning of what we do. Why buy this? Why buy that? Why do this? I'm just going to die anyway. What's the point? Hear the tone of this passage. Breathe in the smelling salts and and clear your head with the news that your death is not final. A resurrection body awaits. A new creation awaits. And therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Look at those last three words, not in vain. In the movie Gladiator, 
Russell Crowe plays the role of Maximus Meritus, great name, commander of the northern armies of the Roman Empire. And there's that classic scene at the beginning, if you've seen the, the movie, where Maximus is motivating his troops because they're about to go into this massive battle against the, the barbarian hordes. And on the verge of this bloody, massive fight that they're about to go into, Maximus calls on his men to fight create, create, courageously and his final words to spur them on to action, his final words are, brothers... What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's a great line. It's not a bad paraphrase of the last sentence in 1 Corinthians 15. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Can you get a grip of the bigness of that idea? Can you sort of get, a, get just a feel of the excitement that that can breathe into your life? You are, called not to live a lot. you are called to live a life far bigger than just to be a happy little consumer with a mortgage and 2.4 children. Being a Christian is far bigger than having cups of tea and coffee and being nice to each other. We are called on to do things that will echo through eternity. And when you invite people to, I don't know, carols by candlelight this Christmas or a guest meeting and when you teach Sunday school at the back or scripture class, when you talk to others here over morning tea to encourage them in their faith, when you get together in a small group, when you give money to support gospel ministry here or wherever, when you talk over the fence to your neighbour about Jesus, at the time, it, it can feel so small scale. Friends, it can, it can put in track stuff that will last forever. For Christ has defeated death. A new creation's coming. And in a flash, you're going to be changed. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Do not move from the gospel. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. It's not in vain. I'll pray. Father, please help us to see this life from your perspective. Help us to see that this life is not futile, to see that there is a new creation coming. And so help us to draw comfort from that, to draw perspective from that and to draw courage from that. Help us not to waste our time here, Father. Help us to do things that will not be in vain, that will last forever. And thank you for the rich privilege and adventure it is to be involved in your work for that. Amen.